Well, we've been in, our, in a series through the book of Acts, and um, if you've been following with, along with us, Acts, the tradition goes, was written by Luke, the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, and in the book of Acts, the question we've kind of been focusing on, a sort of a wider question for the whole series, is what does it look like, what does it mean to be the people of God? And what does it mean to be the people of God here and now? And so we've been looking as we've journeyed through the book of Acts for, for some themes that carry over and some resonances. And you, you'll remember that our first half of the book of Acts, Peter was kind of the front man. And we talked about this being like season one of a TV show. And Peter was kind of the hero. And here we are kind of in season two. And Paul's kind of been the main guy. Well, Paul has carried the gospel and has been planting churches in cities. And this is particularly interesting to us because all of us live in a city. Now, it may not be a city like Boston or a city like New York, but we live in a city nonetheless. And, and there are many challenges in the cities that Paul finds himself in that we find resonances with as, as citizens of a 21st century American cities. Well, today in Acts 17, we're about to see Paul encounter idols. And we heard the New Testament reading of Paul going to the city of Athens and seeing things that troubled him. And I think this is interesting because Um, I I don't know how much time you spend on Facebook or online or social media, but but once in a while, it it kind of gets to a boiling point where I just think, okay, I don't want to read any more rants. I don't want to read any more conspiracy theories, you know. Um, It's just sometimes it gets kind of to this boiling point. And I wonder sometimes, as I was thinking about this text, we, we don't have the question of, are you troubled by what you see in the world today? If I were to ask you that, in fact, just a quick browse on my news feed at Facebook would tell me that lots of people are troubled by what they see in the world today. The question is not, are you troubled? The question is, what do we do about it? What does it mean to be the people of God living in a world in which we see things and observe things that are troubling to us, and rightfully so? And so the, the, the challenge of the church has always been, how do we function within our culture? What do we do within this framework that we're in? Do we try to um, maybe take over or do we retreat? And really, if you kind of follow, this is the, these are broad strokes and this is a massive oversimplification, so forgive me for this, but I think if you were to kind of say, how, how did the church more or less respond to culture back and forth through the centuries, you would see at times an approach of isolation where they would kind of retreat from it and say, you know what, uh, the, the church is be- Christianity has become the official religion of the empire, the church has become a little worldly, let's retreat. And you've got the desert fathers, and lots of good came out of that, and the monastic movements, and all of that. And yet, there was kind of the approach of saying, well, let's just have isolation, let's just withdraw from it. On the other hand, we've seen, and we've seen in Europe throughout the centuries, kind of the approach of domination. Let's take over, and if the king will get baptized like King Clovis of the Franks in 490 AD, once, once the king gets baptized, then he orders all of his soldiers to get baptized. And then wherever the king conquers, they automatically become Christian lands. All glory to Jesus. <laughs> And, and all of us kind of say, okay, that makes me nervous. Rightfully so. And we find ourselves kind of like this pinball being pushed back and forth between maybe we just need to isolate. And, and honestly, sometimes in every four years, there's this thing that happens here in America. And we, we find ourselves swinging to one end or another where one group says we need to be so involved and engaged to the point of 
our, where our goal is domination. We need to take over and take our country back and bring God back. And, and the language almost leans towards domination. And then other people get so sick of that and they retreat and they say, you know what, who cares about any of this? Let's just be over here. What I want to suggest to you this morning is Paul in Acts 17 chooses neither option. He doesn't choose to see, he doesn't observe the idols in Athens and then say, all right, well, let's just kind of chill out over here. Nor does he say, all right, well, let's just take over. Let's run the whole place. Let's dominate. Miroslav Volf is a theologian. He's the chair of systematic theology at Yale Divinity School. And he has a book that came out last year where he talked about the tendency of our faith to malfunction in one of two ways when it comes to engaging culture. And he calls one side of it, he calls it, it, when it, when our faith malfunctions, he calls it idleness, where our faith sort of is idling like a car idles. It just, it's there, you've got this amazing car with a V8 engine, truck, or whatever, you know, and it just sits there idling in traffic. It's not, you're not using it for anybody's good. But on the other hand, our faith can malfunction when it swings over into coerciveness, where all of a sudden our faith becomes the justification to dominate others and to bully others and to mock others. I've never seen any of that on Facebook, right? I love the little you know, e-card that was going around on it. Thank you for your, uh, your post. Your, it has totally convinced me to change all my political views, you know. <laughs> Coer- coerciveness. Idleness or coerciveness. And we swing back and forth. I think the goal for us as, as followers of Jesus is neither isolation nor domination, but this word incarnation, where the word becomes flesh, where we're always asking ourselves, okay, what does the gospel look like if it's proclaimed to these people in this city? Okay, what is the good news? What does it sound like when we present it, when we announce it in this day and in this age? What does it mean, back to our question in Acts, to be the people of God right here, right now. Turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17, and we'll start with verse 16. And this was our New Testament reading, but we'll hear it again. And while Paul waited for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to find that the city was flooded with idols. And he began to interact with the Jews and the Gentile God worshipers in the synagogue. It's Paul's practice to always start with where there's a group of Jewish believers or people who are favorable to the Jewish faith. And then he also addressed whoever happened to be in the marketplace each day. This is Paul kind of standing, talking to people as they're walking by. And certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in discussion too. And some said, what an amateur. What a hack. What's he trying to say? Now, (laughs) as an aside, all preachers rejoice. If Paul is called a hack, then hey, we're in good company, you know, like can't do much worse than that. Others remarked he seemed to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, and they said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. We live in Colorado Springs, but in many ways there are lots of overlaps, lots of resonances between Athens in the first century and any city really in 21st century America today. Now, probably if we were looking for a more tight parallel or analog, we'd say Boston, or we'd say maybe in Europe, we'd say Paris, where all the legendary philosophers and writers and poets were, and that's sort of what Athens kind of was. But they're surrounded by different philosophies, and, and Luke names two. He names Epicureans and Stoics. Who, who, who are these guys? What, what, what are they? 
I want us to ask here, okay, what do we see? Epicureans and Stoics both kind of believed that there was this, this strong division between the material world and the spiritual world. Like matter doesn't matter. And the real stuff happens up here where the gods are. But interestingly enough, both groups kind of had different conclusions about that. Okay, so if matter doesn't matter and if the gods are up here and we're down here, the Epicureans said, all right, well then eat, drink, and be merry. Because it doesn't matter what we do in our bodies. It doesn't matter. There's no such thing as sin or judgment. If there are, if there are gods, but they're distant and they're up there somewhere. So just kind of party on, dudes. I mean, this is, the Epicureans would be kind of like our postmodern partiers. You know, they're like, yeah, God, maybe, I'm not going to say no, I don't know, but even if there is one, how do we know what he really thinks? And so as long as you find something that feels good and makes you happy, then by all means. Now, we don't have anything like that today, right? <laughs> and then you have the Stoics, and the Stoics were on, they came up with sort of a different conclusion. They said, okay, look, if matter doesn't matter, then you ought to just sort of, uh, you know, do what, um, do your duty, kind of just follow obligation here. And we get kind of our expression, we use the word stoicism to, from, from these guys, from this way of thinking, and it's basically the, 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 the stiff upper lip, like, well, you know, like, we, we can't figure out everything here, but there's a certain lot in life, the gods have faded it, the gods may be distant, but they have kind of determined some things for you, it's deterministic, so, so just kind of do the right thing. I, I think of the Stoics as being a little bit like the moralists. Maybe the Midwestern moralists, the salt of the earth people, maybe, maybe the people who sort of think, you know, you know what, I don't know a whole lot about, I think about my, um, uh, my, my wife's you know, grand, uh, grandparents and, and the folks on her side in Iowa who kind of would say, you know what, the God, the Bible, doctrine, I, we don't know, but you've got to be a good person, Right? I mean, it's just sort of this thing of, I, I, I can't, I don't know any of this highfalutin religion and philosophy and theology. You can debate, I, I don't know. We just know you got to take care of your neighbor and you got to help. If the farmer needs help getting his bull back in the pen, then you're, by golly, you're going to get up and help. You know, that, that's sort of, and I'm not making this stuff up. And probably you all know people who think like this, who say, look, religion, I, I don't know, God, sure. But I'll tell you what really matters is doing the right thing here and now, right? So Epicureans and Stoics are all of a sudden, we say, hey, this isn't Athens, this is like today. There are people who think this, there are people who say, God's afar off, so find whatever feels right. Or God's afar off, so just do the right thing then, he's faded your life. And Paul begins to engage these guys in dialogue and says something to each of them that becomes challenging. Now, the interesting thing is Luke tells us that Paul sees this and is troubled, but then the very next sentence says, so he engaged them. I love that. So he begins to talk with them. How would it be if we were the kinds of people who, when you saw something that troubled you, you said, you know what? I'm going to try to learn about them. Them. I'm going to try to find out who they are and what they think. Instead of saying, I mean, think of all the options Paul could have done. He could have come up to the marketplace. He could have come up to these guys and said, you wicked people, you're all going to hell and there's wrath coming and these idols are false. And Paul would have been correct. And yet wrong. Correct and yet wrong. The question for us, as I said, is not, do you see something that makes you troubled? 
What do you do about it? For Paul, he says, okay, he's deeply troubled, but he began to interact with them, began to talk with them, began to address them. And what does he say? What do we say? The first kind of clue into what we say is found in actually the earlier part of Acts 17. And if you'd kind of scroll up on your Bibles with me to verse 3, this is Paul and he's preaching to a group of Jews, but he says this. He says, through his interpretation of the scriptures, he demonstrated that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And he declared, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, for those of you that are up on different conversations about the gospel or whatever, you've maybe picked up on this, but there's a, there's a big sort of, okay, we use this word gospel, 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 gospel. What is the core of the gospel? Is it that Christ died in my place for my sins? Yes. Is it that God's going to make all things? Yes. But, but, but if we had to say it in five words, how would you say it? How Paul says it in five words is this. This Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus is the Messiah. And you're like, okay. Why is that the, 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 the sort of the kernel, the seed, the core idea of the gospel? Because first of all, it's about Jesus. See, here's my hesitation, all right? If the gospel for you is about what you get out of it, i.e. forgiveness, salvation, heaven, then the gospel can easily become... Jesus can easily become a thing that you use in order to get to heaven, right? So, oh, what's the gospel? The gospel is my passport to heaven, and Jesus is my savior, which means he's a means to my end. But if you say, you know what, the center of the gospel is not about what I get, but the center of the gospel is who Jesus is, and wrapped up in that is what he's done for me, and what he, how he died in my place for wrapped up in but you place the center as the right thing. The gospel ultimately is a good news announcement that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And then outward from there, you draw all kinds of other implications. Because he's the king, he saves. Because he's the king, he was the only one who could do for me what I could not. He died in my place. You, you can say all of those things outward from that phrase. In fact, after Paul says this, Luke tells us, that, that um, some people were stirring up trouble and trying to arrest the people at Jason's house. Jason, not your house, but Jason in it. Because it says, because they obeyed another king other than Caesar. That tells you something. Jesus is king. I think, this is, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but bear with me. If you reduce the gospel to what I get out of it, the gospel is how I get my sins forgiven and go to heaven then there is, it's very, it's difficult to connect discipleship to that, isn't that? Because the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for me, and so therefore I can just use him to get to heaven, and then however I live on earth, it doesn't matter. You've all of a sudden become a Christian Epicurean. But if you say, Jesus is king, and because of that I've got to repent, and because of that I need to accept what he has done for me that I could never do for myself, all of a sudden a life of discipleship follows. Because Jesus is king, will be king, is always and forever king. Amen? And so this is the heart of it. Jesus is the Messiah. But Paul kind of draws some, some very important conclusions out of it. And I want to look at three this morning. So you got your pens and paper, you're taking notes, or you're writing on your phone or iPad, whatever. This, the, the, three things that Paul draws from this in his sermon 
to these philosophers. He later gets they get they take him over to the Areopagus of Mars Hill, basically, and and uh, and he gives the sermon. And the first thing Paul drills home is this: that number one, God is the source of life. He says this in verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything since he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. Paul starts to say, okay, listen. If the core of my announcement to you is that Jesus is the Messiah, then what I'm saying to you is that the king of the universe is king of this earth. In other words, God, this God, is the source of life. Now think for a minute how that confronts both the Epicurean, the hedonists, and the moralists. Because it says to them, look, this life didn't start with you. This idea of breath, waking up, it didn't start with you. It started with God, that there is a God who started all of it. God is the source of it all. Think about how massively subversive that is. All of a sudden, if you say, okay, wait a minute, so you're telling me that not only is there a God who is the source of life, but He intentionally created this. That's right. Compare this to other creation myths. Compare this to myths that said that the earth showed up because the gods uh, made love with e to each other or fought with each other and killed each other and tore their bellies open and flung the sun and the moon and the stars. These are other creation mythologies. And in the face of that, Paul says, no, let me tell you about this unknown God that you're naming. He's the one who purposefully, willfully started this all. The Jewish prayer of blessing begins with Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, the King of the universe. Paul's up to something here. He's saying Jesus is how the King of the universe becomes King of Earth. It's real. And all of a sudden, the sermon is kind of building. And so the second thing he says is, not only is God the source of life, but God is near to us. Acts 17, verse 27, but God made the nations so that they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. Again, con contrast this to the mythologies that said the gods are up there living their life and humans are, are their playthings. Humans are their toys. Humans are their action figures that the gods just sort of mess around with. Paul's saying quite the opposite. The God who is the source of life wants everyone to seek him. He's near to us. And then Paul begins to quote one of their own poets. And he says, look, as one of your own poets has said, in him we live and move and have our being. He is near to us. Probably a lot of us in the last decade or so have been introduced to other religions maybe for the first time and I, I understand how shocking that can be when you sort of grow up in, in a climate or a culture that assumes that if people believe in God they mean the Christian one and because of 
globalization because of the flattening of the world. We, we can kind of see, we can look over each other's uh, offenses, so to speak, as Thomas Friedman put it years ago. And we can peer into each other's backyards. We kind of know a lot about each other. I mean, Jim's telling me that the other day he was in Montana on a phone call with Dubai, India, and like another country, like doing business. You know? and, and some of you probably say, yeah, me too. I, I do that too. Yeah. And, and we, we know what's going on. There are other religions. And so this brings up a very difficult question. The question of what do we do? Oops. Maybe I muted myself here. The question of what do we do with other religions? If God is near to us, why do so many people seek Him in other ways? There's no way for me this morning to answer that question, so take a deep breath. Stop (laughs) expecting too much of me. But I do want to say this. I grew up in Malaysia where when I would walk from one end of my street to the other, I would see a Buddhist altar outside one house. I'd see another person working in their yard with the Hindu um, ash thing on their foreheads, and see someone else driving in with head covering who's a Muslim. Uh, Malaysia, Christians are about 10 or 11% of the population in Malaysia. Most of my schoolmates growing up were not Christians. Uh, my father grew up in a Hindu home uh, until he met my mom, and she was Anglican, and she said, I'm not marrying someone who's not a Christian. And he said, I'll change that. The most <laughs> successful missionary dating effort ever. It's not recommended. Um, And we somehow imagine that it is humble to say that all religions are the same. And you you hear that a lot, don't you? I mean, you hear that in in school. You hear that from different sources. You know what? We just need to kind of acknowledge that whether it's this God or that God, it's all the same. And we imagine that that's a very humble thing to say. Can I tell you that those are fighting words? That, 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 That pluralism is actually incredibly arrogant to the major religions of the world. Tell a Muslim that Allah is all the same. Tell a Buddhist that Nirvana is basically the same as grace. You're not going to get far with that. So our culture kind of believes this thing that pluralism is very humble. I suggest to you that it's very arrogant. Because who are you to say that all religions are the same? Have you been to the mountain and you've come back and you've seen them all and all roads really do lead? Have you been there? No one's going to listen to that. And so the flip side to say, well, all religions are maybe a shadow of this one true revelation of God whose name is Jesus, that is an arrogant statement. But it's not any more arrogant than the statement of pluralism. That's, that, that's what I want you to hear this morning, is sometimes we've been told, look, to claim for Christians to say that Jesus is, that's incredibly arrogant. And do you think pluralism is less arrogant? Because it's, it's however you try to meld other religions, you're going to end up making a major faux pas. You just can't do it. So... What we try to say with humility, and someone asked me this on Twitter this week. See, if you're on Twitter, I I answer questions. But but one of you asked me, so what do you think about this or that? And I I said, you know, a a phrase that that N.T. Wright uses again, and he didn't come up with it, but but he's fond of this phrase, is epistemological humility. Epistemology is how do you know what you know? How do you know that Jesus is the flow? How do you know what you know? 
It's one thing to say, I believe that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. It's another thing to say, but how do I know that I know that? It's okay to have humility about that. It's okay to say, you know what, I, I, I believe that. It's a, it's a bit of a leap and I'm not going to twist your arm or bully you. This is where the temptation to make your faith coercive becomes. You say, well, I believe that Jesus is there. And listen, I can prove it to you. And if you don't agree with me, then you're stupid. I love dialogue. That's basically, in a nutshell, how spiritual conversations go in our culture. Man, I love dialogue. Translation, I love to beat people down with my arguments for Jesus. As the, yeah. We are making an outrageous claim to say that Jesus is the full and final revelation. It is outrageous. But we say it with humility and say, you know what? This is what we believe. And... I pray that God gives you the grace to see it too. In fact, what Paul says is, God has wanted every nation to seek him. That's a very different tone, isn't it, than saying, you stupid people, all these idols, idiots. There's a lot of things he could have said that he didn't say, but he says, look, God made the nations so that they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. God isn't far away. C.S. Lewis is one of the more contemporary ones who put forth the theory that maybe other religions are a, a view of God with the lens out of focus. And Jesus is the one that says, uh, you're kind of, you know, there's something true about what you're saying. There's something but listen, here's Jesus. And this is the picture in HD. This is what God is. This is what God looks like. C.S. Lewis didn't say HD because there wasn't HD. But <laughs> All right. Thirdly, the other thing Paul says is, yes, God is near to us, and I see that you're seeking him, but could it be that what you're really looking for is found fully and finally in Jesus? And then lastly, Paul says, God will judge the world, really racking up popularity points. Verse 30, God overlooks ignorance of these things in times past but now directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and lives. This is because God has set a day when he intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. Who's that man? Oh, it's the one that God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. It's Jesus. Once again, Paul's center, Jesus is the Messiah, works outward into saying if Jesus is the Messiah, then the king of the universe is going to judge the earth through the king of this earth who is Jesus. Jesus is how God's just judgment begins to come. He's the one appointed to do this. Now, I, I just want to tell you that this is a difficult subject to talk about. And it ought to be. I, I think Christians who are too gleeful about God's judgment, I don't know if you get grace. Because remember, we're not excluded from the company of sinners. And but for the grace of God in Christ, we would be there, right? So we ought not to be these gleeful, yeah, man, God's going to judge you and let it burn. And some of the stuff I see, I just think, God, have mercy. We don't get it. Because it's not gleeful say God is judging and sometimes I'll be honest the tendency for me is to say well can't we just talk about sin as being self-destructive 
Because that's self-evident, isn't it? I mean, we all, we, you see that when, uh, when, when you begin to live your life. And again, think of Luther's definition of a sin nature, the, the bending in of your life on itself. We would call that imploding, right? And, you, and we've seen people who, who pursue these things and it just becomes this, this destructive thing. And it is worth talking about that. It is worth pointing out to people that our sins are destructive to us in different ways. This weekend, I've been talking with Holly and, and Jason and some others specifically about, in our culture, in our day, the, the pro- proliferation of lust aided by technology and the internet and devices and all of this stuff. And it's worth talking about how destructive that is, how you're not just doing something bad that God says, you know, don't do that here but that you're destroying your life. Single people, you're destroying your future marriage. This is like you're turning it in on yourself by, by fixating on an image that is impossible. And then you come to a marriage and you think, well, maybe I can make this, maybe this intimacy in our marriage can be just like this book. Or this thing, or this, and, and, and you can say, no, no. So why are marriages falling apart, and why are, why, why are uh, people waiting longer and longer to get married? I mean, is it because we've created impossible ideas of love and intimacy, and so we never want to commit because we don't believe that that's what we'll get? And we say we're holding out for God's best, but really what you're holding out for is an illusion that you're enslaved by. It's worth talking about how destructive sin is. But we cannot stop there. Because sin is not just destructive, it's also offensive to God. Deeply offensive to God. And at first glance, you say, well, that's just silly. Well, then, I mean, what? It's more convenient to believe in a God that's far off like the Epicureans did. Because if God is far off, then matter doesn't matter. And what I do here doesn't matter. So who cares? But if the king of the universe has become king on this earth through Jesus and God really is the source of life and God really is near, then judgment is something to be, to tremble about. And the thing to think about, maybe to lighten the mood just a touch, (laughs) I, I, um, I've written a number of, of worship songs and have had the joy of seeing them sung in different settings. And I imagine what it might be like someday if I walked in a place and they were getting ready to sing, you know, a particular song, and they were convinced that, you know, let's see, any musicians in the house here? Okay, let's say, you know, a song that's supposed to be 75 beats per minute, they're convinced that it's 110 beats per minute, you know? And they're telling the whole band, this is right, this is, this is what, this, you know, as morning dawns and evening fades, you inspire songs of praise. Like, yes, this is your name, this is wrong in my entire, you're, you're. It's like, man, you, you can't even see it. Ah. If I were to say to the band, say, guys, can, ah, can I just, can I say something? Like, that's not how it goes. What gives me the authority to say that? I wrote it. <laughs> with someone else. (laughs) But the one who created has the right to judge. 
the one who created, has the right to judge. This is not God playing schoolmaster because God doesn't have anything better to do and he likes to come and ruin all our fun. This is God saying, I wrote this song and you're messing it up. And as you're messing it up, you're ruining it for everybody else. I made this world. I made male and female. I made marriage. I made life. I made family. I, I made this stuff. And, and, and no, duh. When you do that, the song is beginning to fall apart. The one who created is the one who can judge. So it, as difficult as it is to say, we have to affirm this. If we are going to affirm God as the creator, guess what you've also got to affirm? God is the judge. And that's what Paul does. He kind of sneaks up on it, you know. The unknown God. Let me tell you about him. He made everything. They're like, okay, we're listening. He's near to you. No kidding. Wow, tell us more. He will judge one day. Oh, Paul. And it's at this moment, it's at this moment in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead. Now, that, there is a reason why the resurrection becomes central to all of the apostles preaching in Acts. Because resurrection says that physical and spiritual have been put together. That earth and heaven have been joined together. Jesus' resurrection says you can't have this imaginary separation of a distant God who made this world and then left on vacation and set the clock and let it run. There is a God who raised Jesus from the dead, which means heaven and earth have been put together. The physical and the spiritual have been put together. And that has all kinds of resonances. It means what you do matters. And then you realize, uh, if it does, we're in trouble. And Paul says, right, but the resurrection also means that God has made a way. But for these Greeks, they couldn't get past the stumbling block of the resurrection. And it says they began to ridicule Paul. However, others said, we'll hear from you about this again. Hmm, Paul, interesting. How about tomorrow, same time? Okay, that's, that's not bad. At that, Paul left the council. And some people joined him and came to believe including Dionysius, a member of the council at Mars Hill. This is a big deal. This is a thinker. And a woman named Damaris and several others. Really, when we hear this sermon, we've been kind of putting on the lens of how we can talk about Christ in our day and with others and in our culture. But now, we've got to put on a very different lens and to say, all right, Imagine all of you standing there that day and you've just been confronted with a message that says what you do matters because God made this world. He did it on purpose, but he did it because he wants us to seek him and call out for him. But look, the creator will be the judge and so there's some reckoning to do. But the good news is that God has come to us in Jesus. God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus died on the cross, suffered, took upon himself all of our sin, all that is wrong and broken in the world. And God raised Jesus from the dead. And so the good news is, if you would turn to him, you will find that this God is near, that this God is here. That everything you've hoped 
That all your moralistic good efforts and stoic kind of just be the right good guy, be the right, you know, do the right thing, be the right mom, be the right, you know, all of your stoic do the right thing stuff could never climb you high enough. The gospel announces that God has done it. He's here. Come. Or all the pleasure-seeking Epicurean, well, it doesn't matter. Who knows? We don't know. We don't care. Let's just do this. If it feels right, it's fine. God will be fine. He says, no, actually it won't be. And you're on a collision course with self-destruction and ultimately with judgment. But the good news is, God has come to us in Christ. And so really for us this morning, we kind of have the same three choices that those folks did too. We, we can mock it and say, that's just, oh, there you go, this Christian's narrow-mindedness, mock it. Or you could seek. Say, well, I, that's interesting. Never heard anybody talk about the gospel as God coming near in Jesus. God taking our place. God becoming king. I'd like to hear more. That's a great place to be. Keep coming. Keep talking. There's lots of Pauls in this room. Pauls and Paulas. Would love to keep talking. And maybe... There are others of us that even though you maybe have been walking with the Lord for a while, you'd say, you know what? I said I'm a Christian. The truth is I'm a Stoic. I think there's a God who did some neat stuff and there's a way I ought to live and so I'm just, I'm just trying. Instead of saying, no, no. There's a God who came, who lived, who died, who rose again. And that means your life is being transformed. I want to turn toward that God. I want to turn away from my moralism. I want to turn away from that. Some of you may be familiar with this, but um, a so Christian sociologist did a study a number of decades ago. It said, a number of decades, a number of years ago, I think within the last decade. It said, what's the major religion based on how these questions were answered by young people? And he said, the major religion of people in America is not Christianity. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. A far-off God wants me to feel good and do good things. That's the unknown God. It's the same God, right? Same sort of mentality as the Athenians. Faraway God wants me to feel good, wants me to do good, instead of a God who's the source of life, who is near to us, who will judge it all and set it right, and has already done for you what you could never do for yourself in Jesus. Will you turn to him this morning? Let's pray. As we get ready to come to the communion table, I want us just to take a moment and just be still and maybe quiet before the Lord where we are and and maybe you can just begin to think and say, God, where, maybe prayerfully say, God, where, where am I um, sort of trying to live like a moralist here? Or where am I trying to live like an Epicurean here, trying to just seek what feels right? Or Where do I need to turn toward Jesus, the God who has come in Jesus? The Jesus who is the King. Jesus who saves, Jesus who is Lord. And just let that question kind of 
sit for a little while.